Thanks for joining us today. We love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So we encourage you to share your story with us at info at fellowshipgj.com. Also, if God is using this ministry to impact you, we want to encourage you to partner with us financially. You can do that online at fellowshipgj.com and pick the giving option that works best for you and help us continue to bring the message of Christ to our community and beyond. Again, thanks for joining us and enjoy today's message. So I am 30 years old and I own precisely one toy. Now, our sons own a collective 6,526,211 toys, but this toy is my toy. And I received this toy when I was five years old, the day after my birthday. And I had desperately wanted this toy a few months before for Christmas, and my parents searched frantically everywhere in the holiday rush and the season, and they could not locate the toy. And so... My dad, who traveled occasionally for business, searched up and down when he would travel, and he found this toy five states away in the 21st-ish store that he went to to look for it, and he brought it home to me the day after my fifth birthday, and he handed it to me, and he said, never forget that you have a dad that loves you more than anything. And I held this toy and I slept with this toy tucked under my arm as a kid all the way through to the day I moved out of my parents' home for the first day of college. And then I left it nicely in the middle of my pillow on my childhood bed at my parents' house. And a couple weeks passed and I was in the college dorms and I was enjoying college life and I received my very first care package from my parents. And I was like pumped to tear into it and see what was loaded inside all the treasures that you want as a college student. And inside my first care package was glowy. And attached to him was a note that simply said, you are never too old to have a dad who loves you. Having a dad that loves you shapes you. Having a dad that is good transforms you. And I think that's why Jesus went out of his way to make sure that we understand that we have a heavenly father who is good and loves us. And when Jesus first threw out that truth, it was revolutionary. When Jesus prayed, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, people were like, what? God as a father? That had not been thought of much before. In fact, God was viewed as distant and disinterested, not engaged and involved, not close and affectionate. And so when Jesus threw out that truth, people were shocked. Now, sadly, in our day and age, this life-changing truth has kind of been diluted. And for some, it's really been cheapened or polluted. Because when some people think about God, they get tripped up with the comparison of God to a father because of their earthly father. Now, God has given us all earthly fathers, and our earthly fathers are a shadow of our heavenly father. And sometimes our earthly fathers will point us to our heavenly father, but sometimes our earthly fathers stand in contrast and are the opposite of the heavenly father. 
But either way, we cannot allow the shortcomings or the successes of our earthly father to limit our pursuit of the goodness and the love of our heavenly father. No matter what type of father you personally grew up with, know this, your heavenly father is good. And he loves you deeply and desperately, and he has your best interest in mind. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says this, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. Now this word Abba can best be translated as Daddy or Papa. Daddy or Papa God, and of course, this is a word that we've heard many times can be common for children to refer to a parent. It can express like that delighted dependence, that intimate connection between a child and a good father. But its meaning is further than that, because it's also the same word that is used when a mature adult expresses respect and honor to a good parent. It can be symbolic of of the mature interdependent love that takes place as a child ages from childhood into adulthood but still has an affectionate connection with that parent. Now when we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus references God and he's most often using the term Abba. Now he could have picked any term, any number of nicknames or any number of of names that are written in scripture to refer to, but instead he chose Heavenly Father, and it seems to kind of be his favorite. God is not just our Abba. He is a good, loving, and kind Father God. And one of the biggest truths that we will all wrestle with in this life is how do we view God? Do we see him as this God who is good and has our best interests at heart, or do we see him in a completely another manner? Because many people fall victim to a myth about God, one of many myths that are like wearing a pair of tinted sunglasses that that change not only the way they see God, but change the way they view life and the circumstances of life and the events on this planet. It's important that if we have put on one of these myths through which we're viewing God, that we reject that myth, that we toss it aside, and that we study and learn and choose to believe the truth about who God really is. Because how we view God single-handedly affects how we trust him, how we communicate with him, and how closely we want to follow him on a daily basis. So this morning I want to talk about three myths that people struggle with when it comes to God. And the first one is the angry God, right? This is one that's super common. And this myth says that God is up there holding in his fist lightning bolts. And as soon as we mess up, he can't wait to just throw one of those down and zap us. That he's frustrated, that he's disgusted, and that he just wants to punish us. And many people go through life with some variation of belief in the fact that God is so angry. But friends, the truth is that God is not angry with us. Yes, sometimes he has to distance himself from us because of our choices. But his deepest hope and his truest longing is to draw us back through his love, through his mercy, through his goodness, through his kindness. He wants us to repent so that we can have relationship, not so that he could bring judgment. God desires our hearts. 
He doesn't look forward to punishing his children. Any good parent knows that discipline hurts the parent more than the child, right? How many times have we of parents made that exact same statement? It will hurt me more than it hurts you. God is a good father. He's not an angry, abusive, alcoholic father. The second myth that that many people fall into is believing that God is the distant God. The distant God. This myth says that he's indifferent, that he doesn't care about our problems. It says that he's unconcerned, he doesn't get involved in the hurts and the heartaches of human life. This view of God creates fear, that God doesn't really love us, that he doesn't really want to connect with us emotionally. But the Bible reveals the opposite truth about our Heavenly Father. Romans 8 says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or treated with death? No. The verse goes on to say, no. And Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are crushed in spirit. So like a good father, our heavenly father rushes to us when we're injured. Imagine as a father, you watch your small child wipe out dramatically on their bicycle. You would run to them, you would scoop them up, you would show empathy and concern for their wound. You'd probably bandage it or at least send them to mom for a bandage, but the truth is, The good father is not distant from his hurting child, but empathetic and close. And the third myth that that damages our view of God that some people have is the too busy God. This myth talks about how God is simply preoccupied. He's running the whole universe after all, and he's probably loaded down with the prayer requests of important people like kings and presidents and stuff, and then there's just us, regular people, and certainly he would not have time for us. He's too busy with more important things than worrying about our feelings or what we're struggling with. And many people believe that myth to be true, but the scriptures again say the opposite. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And Acts 10 let us know, God shows no favoritism. God doesn't evaluate people based on how much money they have. He's unconcerned with how good looking we are. He's not concerned with how far someone can throw a football or how quickly they can lead a corporation into a profit. God is not impressed by titles nor by Instagram followers. God is not a respecter. He's not a favoritist like humans are. God loves all of his children uniquely and individually, specifically to their hearts and their personality. So to buy into the myth that God is preoccupied, too busy with the running of the universe is simply to imagine our God far too small. God is limitless. He has unlimited time. He has unlimited finances. He has unlimited attention to share. Our God has unlimited capacity to listen. 
He has unlimited intellect. He has unlimited power. And so the fact that you or I need something in no way distracts him from running the universe. It's the actual point of the universe is for that humankind to have connection with the Almighty. Our Heavenly Father is not on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Our Heavenly Father is not in need of some vacation so he does not burn out. In fact, the scriptures let us know that he does not even sleep or slumber. He always has time for us. Jesus talks about how great the Heavenly Father is in a particular verse. In Matthew chapter 7, it says this. It says, If you then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Okay, so this verse fascinates me because I'm a parent. And there are some days as a parent where I feel like I am crushing it, okay? Where everything is going great. I have the extra snacks immediately upon the request. I have a change of clothes for the ketchup that fell down the shirt. I am ready to go in every way. And there are days where if I were to like evaluate myself on a scale compared to other parents, I would say I am above average that day because there's always that mom at Walmart that's bringing the average down for the rest of us so that we can feel good. But then there's this verse, right? In Matthew 7, where Jesus calls me or calls my parenting or some uncomfortable merger of the two evil. Jesus basically says, Jail, I know like you're doing the best you can and stuff. And on a scale of one to a billion trillion million, where God is a billion trillion million, perfect, limitless, every way, everything he does as a parent is flawless. And then there's you. You're like a you're like a like a one. So I read this verse and I feel a little, you know. A little deflated at first. So I look up, what is the meaning? When Jesus throws out that word evil, like what is the meaning of that word in the original languages? And what, what I discover is it's not as offensive as you would think. It actually means Jesus is saying, like, JL, you're you're diseased. Like at best, you're you're diseased, you're morally culpable, you're flawed. And although there's a little sting. To that sentence, I don't exactly love it. I know what he's talking about. I know what Jesus is referring to, like in the pit of my soul. I know that just last week I was the Walmart mom bringing down the average. And so when Jesus is making this statement, I get it. I get where he's coming from. And he just calls it like it is. He's like, you're a one compared to God's million, billion, trillion of perfection, of excellence. And so Jesus is saying... If God is up here and you're down here, and I kind of feel like he's saying it like this, like, I know it's going to hurt your feelings that I mentioned this, but God is like perfect and you're, I'm like, we're like normal or whatever it is. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, as flawed, as morally culpable, as diseased, if I know as diseased as I am how to give good gifts to my children, then the scripture says, How much more will our Father in heaven know how to bless, how to protect, how to give good gifts to his children? And and this verse continues to fascinate me because this next underlying section says good gifts. 
So you know how there's always that one person that gives the awkward gift? That you're just like, this wasn't a white elephant, right? Like you knew <laughs> this scratchy sweater, turtleneck, is, this is awkward. It says good gifts. And I think sometimes when, when we think of gifts that God's giving, we need to recognize he's not running some underfunded orphanage here. He has unlimited resources. He can give us more than three meals of beans and rice and a cot to sleep on. Like, our God gives good gifts. And, and then Jesus challenges us to use our imagination with that phrase, how much more? How much more? And we're allowed to imagine the grandness and the goodness that our Father God can lavish upon us with an unlimited budget. And I want to carry this analogy just, just one step further. If I, as a parent who, okay, am flawed and morally culpable and diseased and stuff, if I know that certain things are wrong or are bad or are not in the best interest of my children, how much more so would our Heavenly Father? Right? So these are our three sons. Yeah, they're so cute. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my place for a split second there. These are our three sons, and, and I'm, I'm far from a perfect parent, right? Yet, I love these boys with every fiber of my being. Their very existence brings me more joy than, than I can even put into words. I would move heaven and earth to save them an ounce of pain. And, and I would not hesitate to run through fire for them. And I would not rest in my pursuit of them if they should ever be lost to me. And I am far from a perfect parent. But if I were to do to my children what a lot of people believe God does to humanity, I'd be arrested for child abuse. People say God is good. And they credit him on the flip side for causing cancer. They say, God is good, but, but then he brings these natural disasters, they say. People say God is good and they blame him for terrorist activities in the very next breath. Now, obviously, we flower it up, okay? We try to hide the fact that we're blaming God by saying things in a more palatable way. We say things like, God allowed it instead of he caused it. In my way of thinking, there's very little difference between the two. If I were to abuse my children or allow or permit my neighbor to abuse my children, it's pretty much the same thing. It's a misrepresentation of God to say that he causes evil to show or display mercy. That would be like me as a parent reaching out to one of my sons and, and breaking their arm deliberately so that I could show how great I am at comforting them. It would be like me breaking their legs so that I could show how awesome I am at setting the bone and casting it. It, it would be mean. Yet God does not cause Evil. Evil or pain are not things that God creates in his children. Evil, in fact, is the absence of God. Like cold is the absence of heat. Evil is the absence of God. Evil is in a direct contradiction to who God actually is. 
But the confusion comes in because God in his goodness is able to take any situation that happens in the lives of his children and redeem it. But redemption doesn't equal causation. God is able to take any situation, no matter how tragic, no matter how heart-wrenching, he's able to take any situation and turn it around for his glory and for the good of those who love and trust him and are called according to his purposes, right? Romans 8. And he does miracles, but the struggle isn't necessarily something he created. God doesn't break things or people or families or dreams in the lives of his children to show that he can fix him. That's just mean. God isn't mean. God, in fact, is so much better than we think. Psalm 23, I want to read some excerpts from it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. Now the word picture we get here from this with pursue, this word is so vivid in the Hebrew. It talks about to chase down, to pursue with passion and intensity, to adequately and eagerly secure, to hunt down, to run after And so I ask, what is it that's chasing us? What's pursuing us? Is it God's anger? His vengeance? His frustration? His expectations? No. Psalm 23 says his goodness and his unfailing love is what he unleashes to pursue us. So the image we get here is that God is after us, that God is chasing us, that God is hunting us down to lavish his goodness upon us, to surprise us with his love, to pour out unexpectedly his unfailing kindness to us. And he's pouring all this out upon us to what end? To what end? end to an appropriately moderate proportioned amount? No, it's not what the text says. Psalm, verse 5 of Psalm 23 implies like a liberal amount, an excessive amount, a deliberate outpouring, purposefully, wastefully, extravagant goodness that our God... chooses that type of display. He's enthusiastically pouring out his goodness and his unfailing love until it like flows over and it drips down and creates a giant mess and he doesn't even care. He's not concerned that it ran over as if somehow giving us more creates a lack for someone else. It doesn't endanger his supply. He invites us as his children to drink deeply from his goodness and not to worry because there will always be enough. And then Psalm 34 invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. All around us, God is pouring out this goodness and we as his children have to choose to recognize his handiwork. We have to learn to recognize that God is the one that's doing the good that we see. It reminds me of a story of a man who was at the mall 
I know, it sounds like a contradiction. A man at the mall, and he was looking for a parking spot, and the mall was packed. It was the holiday season, Christmas shoppers everywhere, and he was circling the parking lot and circling the parking lot, and he was desperate to find a spot. He was annoyed. He needed his one thing, right? Get in, get out, go. But he couldn't even park his car, and so in desperation, he cries out to God, and he says, God, if you find me a parking spot, I'll go to church every Sunday next year. And immediately, a car backs out. He swoops in and he says, oh, never mind, God, I got one on my own. (laughs) But that's what happens sometimes. We see goodness and we take credit for it. Or we see goodness and we say coincidence. Or we see God's goodness and we think it's just luck. But it isn't. It's the goodness of God being lavished out upon his children. And we have the choice every day To look around and see a bunch of coincidences or a bunch of opportunities we think we created for ourselves. Or to recognize the extravagant, loving goodness of a good father who's protecting, providing, and pouring this out on our behalf. We have so much to be thankful for. But we have to recognize God as the source of all the goodness that he's giving to us in our life. Let's pray together. God, we're sorry Because sometimes we take credit for your goodness. Sometimes we say it's us. Sometimes we think it's a coincidence and we don't acknowledge because we just miss it in our busy. God, we, we just apologize and we ask that this week that you would help us to take note of all the good that you're at work doing in our lives. All the good that you're at work doing on our behalf and on the behalf of those we love. Thank you, Father, that you are a good kind, loving, trustworthy, heavenly Father. And Lord, for those moments where we haven't believed that or known that in the past, God, now we do and we, and we throw ourselves into your arms as a trusting child. Help us to learn more and more about what that means and bless us this week with an incredible week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, church family, we love you and we'll see you next Sunday morning. Thanks for listening to this week's message at Fellowship Church. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. The Bible says in the book of Romans, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that right now. I just want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Lord, that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again. And God, I thank you for that. I ask you now to be my savior, to guide my life and to give me a home forever in heaven. And God, I ask you this in your precious son, Jesus Christ's name, amen. If you just prayed this prayer for the first time, or if you need prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at 970-245-PRAY or at prayer at fellowshipgj.com. Thanks again. We hope to see you next week.